This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to another edition of America Changed Forever. And once again, this week lived up to the name of this program. America changed forever. People in Highland Park, Illinois, with their kids, enjoying a 4th of July parade, celebrating the birth of this nation. All of a sudden, they hear the pop, 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 pop. Gunfire. Not fireworks. Gunfire. According to witness accounts, people were confused. They thought it was fireworks. Well, of, of course, I probably would have thought the same thing. It is, after all, the 4th of July, supposed to be a celebration, but it wasn't. It was another tragic scene, another mass shooting. And I had some people say to me, well, how sad, how predictable there would be a mass shooting on a 4th of July. Kind of sums up where this country is right now in terms of these mass shootings. They are happening more and more often. And more and more often, our, our kids are in the target zone. Our kids are being targeted. The places where they're supposed to feel safe, have fun, relax. It was a parade. We're going to talk about Highland Park with my colleague and friend, Chris Van Cleave, who has been covering the story for CBS News. As the week wraps up, what are your thoughts about what you witnessed in covering this story? I, I keep thinking about this toddler who was born during the pandemic, went to what was likely his first parade. Uh, it was the first, the community's first parade or the July parade in uh, three years since basically since the pandemic began. Uh, and minutes later found himself an orphan because somebody had a high powered rifle on a roof and was firing indiscriminately. Uh, that that sticks with you. Uh, I spoke with a woman who was there, and she's you see her and her family in one of the photos that's been widely circulated, uh, with surrounded by FBI in full tactical body armor, escorting her, her kids, and her dogs to safety. 
And she said as, as the shots started, her husband, who's in the military, she thought they were fireworks. He yelled active shooter and pushed them all to the ground. And then they realized that there was no cover, that you know people around them were being shot and made a run for it. And as they were running, her eight-year-old daughter looked up at her and said, mommy, I don't want to die. If you think about, that was a 4th of July parade. You know, it's one of those days where the country comes together and finds common reason to celebrate. And here you had a a parade that was bigger than normal uh, because there hadn't been one of these in a while in a, in a community that is widely seen as safe and uh, a good place to live. And that was shattered by at least 83 rounds of rifle fire raining down on a crowd of people 10, 15 in the morning on a, on a really nice July day. Hmm, Tell us, tell us what you know about weapon used. So, you know, police described it as a, as a rifle similar to an AR-15. Um, the, the shooter, uh, according to what police have told us, um, took a position on a, on a roof overlooking um, Central where the parade was going to go down. Um, according to police, he uh, you, you looked through the site at the crowd, took aim, pulled the trigger. Fired 30 times. There were 30 rounds in the first magazine. He stopped to, uh, to reload another magazine with 30 rounds, which is not, not considered high capacity for that weapon, by the way. Um, fired 30 more rounds, stopped, reloaded, fired again. They recovered 83 shell casings. Uh, when they found the gun later, um, the magazine was left on the roof. When they found the gun later, uh, there was still one round in the chamber. Uh, almost like the the suspect felt like he needed to run before he'd finished his work or something. Um, and, and it sounds like the uh, the fact that one of the big breaks here was that they found the gun so quickly, and it, it appears that may have been unintentional. This was a a, a well thought out attack. This this uh, suspect spent, police believe, weeks planning it. Uh, it does not appear that his intention was to leave the gun behind, but it may have fallen out of his backpack as he was making his escape disguised in women's clothing to blend into the chaos because he had uh, very distinct facial tattoos. Um, but because that gun was recovered so quickly, uh, the ATF was able to trace the gun back to its owner, the suspect, uh, in about the time it took the ATF agent in charge to drive from Chicago to Highland Park, which is about an hour or so. Um, and considering that work is done by hand, as you know, is is remarkable. I mean, basically, they get the make, model, and serial number of the gun. They call the gun manufacturer to get the, the name of the gun dealer that received that gun. They call the gun dealer to find out who the gun dealer sold it to. And in this case, that dealer sold the gun to the suspect, uh, a police officer, uh, at least one a school resource officer recognized the suspect's name. Um, and, and very quickly after that, they had a photo. Uh, they were able to go to the, the suspect's mother's house, determine that he was uh, driving her car. And then one of the things that really struck me, you know, they put out that be on the lookout, armed and dangerous suspect. Uh, a good Samaritan spotted the car driving back into Illinois, called police, 
And then Jeff followed the car until police began a pursuit. So here's somebody who saw the car, called 911, and then essentially pursued the vehicle uh, until police got there. When police pulled him over, took him out of the car, they found another high-powered rifle with 60 magazines, 60 rounds inside the vehicle. So that Good Samaritan took their life in their hands. Uh, we also learned that the suspect drove all the way to Madison, about two and a half hours away, saw another parade there and contemplated continuing his killing spree. Oh, as, I, as I process what you just said, the question I'm wondering about is, what is the motive? We asked the police chief that, and the suspect has been talking to investigators. They are learning more about this plot, but so far, the why is something that the suspect is keeping to himself. Well, and frankly, I don't know if we'll ever really know why. And even when we do get an answer, if you think about, you know, I think about the the mass shootings that I've covered and certainly, and I mean, think about the, the, the instances that, that you've covered as well. Very rarely, if ever, can I think of a time that there was a satisfactory answer for that kind of an attack. Whether, you know, I sat through the entire Boston Marathon bombing trial. And at the end of the day, the justification for that didn't, didn't help rationalize the violence. The Virginia Tech massacre. I mean, how do you rationalize firing 83 times at, at, at a crowd, uh, you know, wounding people 8 to 88? Um, you know, there was no one there that was a, a threat to the, to the gunman. Uh, you know, it... it I don't know that you ever know the why. And even if you do, I don't know that it ever like satisfies the why did somebody do that? Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's just despite the fact that these things are now happening so frequently, it's still really beyond explanation. You just, you, you hear, and in this case, we're hearing his father, his uncle, uh, in interviews saying, oh, I'm not responsible. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm going to, his father telling the New York Post, I'm going to walk around the community with my head held high. I have nothing to be ashamed of, something along those lines. <laughs> Nobody seems to know what happened with this kid. They don't know why he did what he did. There is a reason why these things happen. There, there is something going on with these people who carry out these acts where if you pay attention, you see that there is something not right. There is something um, that has driven him to stockpile weapons. And that's why law enforcement always says, if you see something, say something. Whether it's a case with somebody who has been radicalized because of ISIS or some other stupid cause, there are signs in their lives that their lives are going off the rails. Pay attention, people. You know, this, this doesn't happen out of the blue, Chris. You know that. I, you know, and I asked, I asked the mayor, I asked the police chief, I asked, you know, anyone that, that would have been in a position to, to intervene potentially. It's a small enough town that the mayor years ago was his Cub Scout pack leader. 
Um, you know, it's not, it, it's a fairly tight knit community. Um, you know, it, it is clear, in, in, at least in hindsight, that there were some real warning signs. Um, you had uh, social media uh, that, did, you know, depicted scenes of gun violence that um, seemed to depict a, a, a suicide by cop situation um, that, that appeared to perhaps reference uh, a school shooting, things that, that should have read, raised a red flag, things that were fairly widely viewed, viewed far more than anything I've ever, ever put on YouTube. Um, so people saw them. And my question was, did anybody who knew this kid see these things? Did it not raise questions when, uh, you know, he began to radically alter his appearance, tattoos on his neck and face? Um, you know, we, we learned that police, really their only contacts with him were 2016 possession of tobacco by a minor. And then 2019, these two calls, one in the spring and one in September, the first following up on a report of an attempted suicide. Um, and then uh, later in September, a call by a family member that the suspect was threatening people with knives. Um, those things didn't go anywhere. Um, the family didn't pursue charges. Uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't look like uh, there was enough for police to 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 pursue charges, uh, nobody, not the family, didn't pursue a medical hold. Um, and then a few months later, you have the dad uh, sponsoring the kid, essentially signing off on the kid getting his first firearm. Um, you know, were there friends? How isolated was he? You know, what, what kind of a vacuum are you living in when no one notices um, somebody in distress? And that, that I think is one of the big unanswered questions there as, as in every case of these, there were signs that something was, was wrong. Uh, and, and here it appears that they, they all got missed. And, you know, Illinois has strong gun laws. We had a lot of questions about, um, why, well, why didn't the red flag law apply? Well, in 2019, he didn't own a gun. So the red flag law wouldn't apply because that, that's about removing firearms from somebody in distress. And the state has a firearm owner identification card system. You have to apply through the state police and you get vetted. It appears that that system doesn't have a mechanism to store um, complaints uh, about people who, who don't have a pending application or who don't have a firearm identification card. So when he applied months later, even though the state police had been flagged to that 2019 knife incident, um, it wasn't in the system because he wasn't in their system. People assume that if you enact new laws, it's this 100% safety net. And it's not. It takes more than just laws. It takes human beings paying attention to what's going on around them. The people that they are interacting with, the kids that they're raising. You, you can't just expect the latest law in the book to do the job. I mean, clearly, the problem is bigger than that. And there are some similarities with these crimes. You, you talked about the type of weapon used. Again, here we go, hearing about an AR-15-style weapon, which, as I've said on this program over and over and over again, that is the kind of weapon that we see so often in these mass shootings. 
it's it's that common thread. I, I think what's also telling you is this is a suspect that had five firearms. He had pistols. He could have used a handgun to carry out this attack. Uh, could have fired just as many rounds with a handgun, but that would have been far less destructive. And it stands to reason that someone who owns two rifles, high-powered rifles, and multiple handguns knew the difference between the level of destructiveness of the weapons and picked the most destructive one he had access to. Um, we talked to, a, to a, a plastic surgeon who had worked in emergency surgery, emergency rooms in Chicago, so was no stranger to gunshot wounds, who was there, who got his family to safety and went back and tried to help the wounded. You know, and the way he described the injuries are the types of injuries that I remember hearing about when I was covering the war in Afghanistan from a trauma center in Afghanistan. Uh, these were battlefield type injuries because of the weapon being used. And, and I, I think that's the, the important thing for people to understand that the, those AR-15 style weapons, those rounds are, the gun is exceptionally powerful. Those rounds travel very far. And when they, they, they hit a body, they behave differently than the way a pistol round does. And it, it, it behaves differently in that it is designed to commit, uh, cause the, a maximum amount of damage to a, to a person. And those injuries are devastating. It, yeah, it's, it's a killing machine. Uh, definitely. Uh, it's not for hunting. Definitely not for hunting. Uh, it causes serious fatal damage. So Chris, as we look ahead, how does Highland Park recover from something like this? You know, I think we asked that question uh, after every one of these, right? How does a community come together and uh, mourn the loss and, and find strength together? Um, for some people, that'll be their faith. Um, for others, that'll be you know, leaning on, on, on their loved ones, uh, you know, for the families that the seven families, uh, that have been for forever changed because they've lost a loved one. Uh, and it is worth noting, we understand there are, uh, a few other people that remain in, in pretty serious conditions. So that death toll, it could climb. Um, now I don't know how you get past that, that, that little boy, that toddler, that, on the morning of July 4th, had two loving parents that now is an orphan. I don't know how, how that family gets past that kind of trauma. The eight-year-old boy who had his spine severed by a round, his life will be changed. He, he as he recovers, and we, I certainly hope he recovers from those serious, very serious wounds he experienced. He's waking up, will wake up to a new normal, a life forever changed. So, you know, and to, for some of these families, I don't, I don't know how you put, you know, you, you, you put some of this behind you because of the, the, the level of catastrophic loss. Um, but we've watched community after community in this country pick up the pieces. And, you know, it, sometimes it sparks some hard conversations. We saw Congress take some action on, um, mental health and, and, and gun, gun laws after the mass shootings we'd seen earlier this year. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't 
wasn't a bill that Republicans loved. It wasn't a bill that Democrats loved. But it, I think to Congress's credit, they did take some action for the first time in decades. But, you know, I mean, I think you're, you're dealing with a community that is that is heartbroken. And I, I remember I was standing, our uh, our live shot location was near where the, the memorial has popped up at the Veterans Memorial. And uh, I watched these two women come and, you know, they, they, they left something at, at the memorial and um, kind of talked to each other for a while and they were clearly emotional. And then, you know, just hugged each other and, and kind of broke down. And that hug went on for minutes. Um, so, you know, it's Highland Park is a community that's grieving. Um, and, and then there'll be anger and, uh, and then frustration. And then, you know, the, the, you will hear the same conversations that we, we hear after each one of these, that something needs to be done. Uh, I asked Senator Dick Durbin, you know, one of the highest ranking members of the United States Senate, Democrat, the senior senator from Illinois, who was there. What can you do? And it's like the reality is it's a 50-50 Senate. If people want change, they've got to vote in people who will bring that change. Uh, and then he paused and he said, every, every senator needs to understand that they are going to have their Highland Park, their Buffalo, their Uvalde. And he just started listing city after city that's on this awful list of uh, mass shootings. And sadly, I wonder <clears throat> what... What community comes next? <laughs> you know, based on the statistics, it's going to happen again. The question is where? Chris Van Cleve, thanks for your time. Thanks for your reporting. Anytime, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Brittany Greiner, this week in Russia. She pleaded guilty. We're going to get into that in just a few minutes, but I just wanted to talk a little more about her case to set things up here. She's been in Russian custody since February. She, of course, the center for the Phoenix Mercury, a star player in the WNBA. Some critics, not only of her detention, but also of the Biden administration response to her detention in Russia, say that, hey, had it been LeBron James, this country would have done more. But it's not. It's Brittany Griner, and she remains in custody. It's a sad story because if you recall... She was arrested in February, just as the war between Russia and Ukraine was beginning. And of course, the U.S. was trying to put pressure on Vladimir Putin. And some people believe that her arrest was part of the Russian response to what the U.S. was doing in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So let's delve into this issue. Let's talk about it with Jameson Firestone, who is a businessman, lawyer. He was a member of the board of directors of the American Chamber of Commerce in Russia for six years. He lived in Russia for 18 years. 
and he specializes in Russian law. Jameson, thanks for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So do you think this case is different for whatever reason? We know that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin, they use the legal system in Russia to their benefit. Would you agree with that? Yeah, but let's let's first start out with there, there's never um, there's never a good time to be arrested with an illegal substance in in, in Russia, and it, it appears that she had these vaping cartridges, which are legal in in the U.S. and in many places in the world, but which are legal in Russia. So there's never a good time to be uh, trapped by something like that, and of course. Having it happen during the war is bad. Okay, just just to be clear, so those cartridges are illegal in Russia. Yes. Okay. All right, so this past Thursday in a Russian court, she pleaded guilty. Will that help her case or hurt her case? Well, it'll probably help her case. I mean, you have to remember, she's been charged with essentially large-scale transportation of drugs. And from what we can tell of the story, uh, she had some vaping cartridges. Um, and obviously, this, obviously, whatever happened, she was not involved in large-scale transportation of drugs. Um, but the Russians, they don't make nuances. So they just want to, they're like, they're just charging her with this. And she essentially has to say, okay, I, I did it. I brought drugs into the country. Or or I didn't. They're not going to argue on the niceties of, of life about whether she was really trying to distribute these or not. So by pleading guilty, in a sense, she's not she couldn't win anyway. So at least she's not um, she's not she's not further agitating the situation by um, uh, by going against the grain here because she wouldn't have won anyway. Do you agree that she is being used as a political a, a pawn in this political game. Well, it's certainly highly political now. There's there's no question about that. Um, uh, she has been declared by the United States wrongfully detained, that, and that, that's a political category. That's once you do that, that means we're no longer dealing with this like a normal court case. We're dealing as, the, as though she's been taking taken hostage, and the Russians are reacting to this as though it's political because we have a statement from the Russian deputy foreign minister. Um, basically saying that attempts by the American side to make noise in public don't help the practical settlement. So we have a political case. And is she a hostage? Well, sure, because everybody the Russians take, um, if, the, if the public cares, becomes a hostage. So there's no, there's no question that now the Russians are thinking, you know, what, what can they get out of this? And you advise Americans in who are in similar situations. This is, of course, unique. But what would you tell her family? They, she pleaded guilty. Does that mean that she's going to come home anytime soon? Uncertain. Well, first of all, her, her, her wife is amazing. I mean, her wife is a, a real inspiration. Um, she really understands the subject, and she really understands that this is now a political question, and she really understands that the most important thing that can be done is keeping Britney front and center in the news and, and in front of politicians. And she's, she's completely right about that. And, and so 
the 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 trial itself this trial could drag on weeks or months because russian trials just do that they they have to read all the evidence into the record and so you you literally sit there in a cage um for hours and hours while the judge drones on and on and on and on and on and there's nothing you can say or do to change it and then they end for the day and they tell you okay we'll we'll meet like next tuesday to continue this and it just goes on so that's going to go first um and that process is going to continue until they come up um, with their verdict and their sentence. And it's only when that happens that um, there's either a light sentence where, where there isn't a lot of time given or there's a heavy sentence, but that's when the, the, the politics comes into play at that point. And after she's been sentenced, they can um, you know, try and get her out. I mean, obviously negotiations may be going on in the background now, but it's, it's, not, it's not quick. How, I'm sure there are some Americans out there who are listening to this and wondering... Okay, tell tell us about the Russian legal system. What is it about that system? If you hear, you know, most uh, leaders in politics here in the U.S. talk about the Russian system, they paint it as a system that is corrupt. So, is it? If that is true, is it that the just the judges in the system are corrupt or is is the system corrupt if that allegation is true both uh, the russian legal system russian law is an oxymoron it doesn't exist so let me just explain that in this particular case we're not talking about a corrupt judge we're we're talking about a bad system so she is being tried without a jury because she's not entitled to a jury in russia um, the Russian uh, criminal justice system has a 99% conviction rate. Um, that's because you can't really defend yourself. Once you're accused of a crime, almost everybody is found guilty. Um, so the, the system is, is, is truly rigged and truly unfair. Um, and, it's, and, and, and judges and prosecutors and investigators all work together as a team to convict you everybody, not just Brittany. Once you're in that system, that's, that's how it works. So it's a completely um, unfair system um, from the get-go. Uh, some people who might be listening to this interview are perhaps wondering, well, why was she there? Well, a lot of WNBA players go overseas to make more money playing basketball, and that's why she was in Russia in February. She was playing basketball. So if you're her friends, her partner, her fans, when might you expect her to be returned to the U.S.? You can't really predict here. One of, one of two things are, are, are going to happen, as I said. I mean, either for some reason, and this would be unexpected, but it could happen. For some reason, they don't give her a very long sentence and they ask, and, and she serves it and gets out. Or more probable, they give her a long sentence, but then there's a trade. But you have to understand that um, making a trade depends on political pressure. Her, her wife understands this very well. Um, the public has to be demanding that we bring her home. And we have uh, some expensive, uh, we, we have some very high target Russians who the Russians want back, right? Pro high profile Russians. 
and the Russians may be asking for that. And our government may be saying, no, those are, those are too important. We don't want to give them back. So the higher, your, the higher her profile goes, the more people who want her back, uh, the more noise we make, um, the more our government is willing to, I hate to say it, but pay in an exchange. Um, you know, so, so it's important to keep the pressure up. Well, and it, it's not just Brittany Griner. It's not just about her. It's also about former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who he's been in custody for some time. So when you talk about a release of Brittany Griner, you're, you're, there are implications here for the other Americans also being held by the Russians. Absolutely. Now, one of, one of the things that helps um, her is that she's not former military, um, and, and so, you know, the Russians are very um, worked up about anything that has to do with the, the military or anything else. Uh, and the other thing is, look, the number of the amount of publicity that she's gotten is is far higher than anybody else. Um, really, the the amount of noise that's been made uh, on her behalf is 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 quite noticeable. Um, so yes, uh, I, I I think in a way, um, it's going to be easier to get her out than some other she hasn't been accused of spying she hasn't you know she's she's been accused of bringing some vape cartridges into russia accidentally i mean that's she you know that's what she says she did and it's probably true so it's for reasons of uh politics it's it's easier to give up someone like that she just has a higher worth as a in trade because she's so prominent jameson firestone Thanks for your time. Thank you. Welcome back to America Change Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Begays. Let's continue this episode of ACF. Uh, and I'm sort of indulging myself here because, you know, I don't get to talk about golf enough on this program. For any of you who know me personally, you know that golf is life for me. <laughs> it's, um, I, I love the game. It's my escape years ago, 30 years ago. My dad said, Hey Jeff, you, you need to have a hobby. And he was right because you work hard. You, you have to have something that takes you away from work, especially the news business. And especially these days. You need an escape. So for me, golf is that escape. I I don't necessarily turn the phone off, but I put the phone away. I might get out a cigar. I don't drink on the course because this game is serious for me. I'm trying to bring my handicap down. But what I've been doing lately with the friends that I hang out with on the golf course is I ask them not only about golf, but the business of golf, because the business of golf right now, it's changing because there's this league competing with the PGA. It's called Live Golf. It, it, it was organized essentially by Greg Norman who, you know, a lot of people refer to as the shark. He was a great golfer in his day, Australian. But he is leading this league that has money coming from Saudi Arabia. And not, you know, not the people of Saudi Arabia, but MBS. 
the crown prince, the same person who is accused in the Khashoggi death, the Washington Post columnist who was killed, dismembered. So this has become a, a moral question for the game of golf and the players who are joining this league. And I woke up the other day and I saw an article from columnist Kevin, Kevin Blackstone of the Washington Post calling out the game of golf. And I thought, you know what, this is a perfect opportunity to talk about this, this issue, which is bigger than golf, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on the program. But this is bigger than golf. And you, you talk about, in your article, in your column, excuse me, golf's moral feelings in the past. So, so what is it about the past that informs the present, in your view? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, as I mentioned in my piece, I started covering sports i morphed over from a from covering uh economics to covering sports in the early um 1990s and one of the things that always struck me about golf in the context of my career as a sports writer is that it's the only sport um during my time that sided with racial discrimination over inclusion <laughs> and that was back in 1990 when, um, shortly after the Shoal Creek uh, uh, issue down in Birmingham, that some, some may recall, um, the Western Open uh, was to be held, I think it's Butler um, Country Club in Illinois, where it had been for some 17 years. And because of Shoal Creek, the PGA basically said that any golf course that was going to host these events from there on um, would have to have a diverse membership. It seemed like a reasonable thing. <laughs> uh, but Butler National, which was all white, said, no, thank you. Uh, we'll remain all white. You can take the Western Open someplace else. And so the PGA did. And so that's, you know, that's the most recent history. And of course, we know as far back as 1961 was when the PGA rescinded it's Caucasians only clause, which was a written clause, by the way, unlike some other sports that had these so-called gentleman agreements that really weren't written down, but uh, in fact were, you know, de facto um, segregation regulations uh, upheld by membership of those organizations and, and enforced by uh by the people that led them. Hold that thought, because I wanted to go back to something you said, and I pulled it up in your article. You were talking about Butler National Golf Club in suburban Chicago. Uh, it was, you know, there was this discussion about whether it was going to host this tournament. It decided not to host the tournament, because meaning hosting the tournament would have meant for them admitting blacks the potential of admitting blacks uh and there was this also there's also shoal creek country club that you mem you mentioned in birmingham alabama and I, my family is from birmingham alabama and so as i was reading your article 
the quote that stood out from me uh, for me about Shoal Creek is someone who said there, which I wasn't really surprised because at that time in Birmingham, Alabama, that was par for the course. Pardon the pun. But the person said, we don't discriminate. This is somebody speaking for the club, Shoal Creek. We don't discriminate in every other area except blacks. <laughs> and that's it. That stood out that's, to me. Right. And that's the intro for me into, uh, in, into sports writing. And that's a very contemporary, uh, very contemporary time. And, and so, you know, to, to me, a lot of people have looked at this live golf um, series as a commentate as a as a commentary on Saudi Arabia, in which it, it clearly is. I mean, Saudi Arabia has been an MBS, as you mentioned, the Crown Prince um, has been uh, implicated in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, and not only that, you know, they have been um, funding the war in Yemen um, for for years now, which is. Uh, the biggest uh, debacle on, on on the planet, um, you know, Ukraine in, included. Um, you know, the UN has said it's one of the biggest uh, uh, human rights disasters th- that we have right now. And so there's all that. But to me, I'm not surprised that golf would be um, involved. Um, you know, golf has has never been. Um, has never been a guide, a moral compass guide um, in this country or anywhere else around the world. You know, it has not, you know, it has had this Caucasians only rule. Just in 1990, you know, it was, it was still endorsing uh, racial discrimination over inclusion and diversity. Um, we've seen the fight that the Masters has put up. Um, we've, we've heard from some of the legendary golfers like, like Jack Nicholas and his views on, um, on, on black participants in, in the PGA. Um, so, so really this is nothing new for, um, uh, for golf. You don't sound like a golfer, the way you're criticizing golfer golfers in the game. It, to me, you don't sound like a golfer because listen, I've been watching, I've been watching this controversy unfold and I don't know, you know, I, I'm going to challenge you here. I don't know if it's fair to say it's golf because you have Rory McIlroy, you have Tiger Woods, you have others coming out, Justin Thomas, being very vocal about the fact that these players who are joining this other league are doing it for the money, right? It's about the money, and they're saying... You know, Rory McIlroy, JT, Justin Thomas, and Tiger Woods, they're basically saying, listen, for us, and I mean, it's easy for them to say this, they've made a ton of money. For us, they're saying it's more about money. It's not about the money. It's about the competition, about winning majors, right? So you can't really say that it's all of golf. Well, it it is. It is endemic to golf, and yes, there are exceptions. And I um, celebrate and applaud uh, Rory McIlroy, uh, Rory McIlroy standing up and, and refusing to take that money. I I, I applaud um, Harold Varner, right? One of the few black golfers, one of really only two um, on the tour right now, who um, you know was offered 
who knows how much money to integrate <laughs> the live golf tour and, uh, and turned it down. Um, but you know, there are other sports who, uh, who I don't think would even have gone this far, you know, tennis, for example, um, you know, and part of the reason is because I think tennis is, you know, they, tennis has some obligation to team and tennis is recognized as a global type of sport by its inclusion in, in the Olympics. You know, golf as you know, with the, with the exception of the first couple of Olympics that there were, and here just recently, golf has never been a part of the Olympics. It's never really been a part of this global um, sporting community. It's always been um, kind of a, uh, kind of an outsider. It's always been elitist. Um, and, and that really is what you're seeing reflected with these golfers. Um, I can't remember who it was who was in the who was in the uh, uh, who was in the uh, press conference just last week before they teed off up in Portland. But um, that golfer was asked if he was concerned about um, uh, all the um, uh, all the problems with Saudi Arabia, all the human rights violations, and he responded by saying, "No, <laughs> you know, not at all." Um, and so once again, I just think. You know, it's not to impugn every golfer, um, but um, I'm hard not to impugn the sport. Well, and, and you know, I, I I think you bring up valid criticism, I'm, and I, and I'm looking through the comments, uh, <laughs> the response to to your uh, column on the Washington Post. And to be honest, I try not to look through these things typically because people can be really negative. But in this case, you know, I, I think you have a lot of people agreeing with what you've written. Uh, you, you talk about people or there, there are people in the comments section who bring up the fact that these players who have defected to live golf, they're getting these huge signing bonuses. And in fairness, golfer, golfers don't get these kinds of signing bonuses. You see basketball players getting $100 million guaranteed. You see baseball players getting that kind of money. But listen, if somebody offers you, you know, maybe it's a, a rival uh, print outlet offering you $100 million guaranteed, but they have a shady past, come on, man, you know you're going to take that money and run. No, no, I'm I'm not that kind of a capitalist. <laughs> I spent I spent much of my 1980s uh, when I was first out of college um, exploring um, socialism overseas as it was being implemented. So if you know my politics, you know my my ethics. Um, uh, I'm not someone who could who could do that. Uh, uh, you know, I I stopped doing a radio show in Washington D.C. because um, the person really paying the bills, uh, was the owner of the football team who, um, was politics, I absolutely despised. So, so for me, it's, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be hard to do that, but, but that's what it, but that's the money that's on the table. I mean, basically, um, golfers are being offered twice the purse, um, that they would get from the PGA and it's, you know, and it's guaranteed. And, and one of the things that I, you know, reminisce about it in, in my column, which really came came to my mind when I was thinking about this, was the Sun City 
um, development in South Africa during the during the height of apartheid in the uh, late 1970s and, and throughout the 1980s. And that was a casino resort um, that some financiers in uh, South Africa um, built. And one of the things that they did was to lure um, golfers and some tennis players over there with gobs of money um, to kind of sports wash uh, what was what was going on in their country at the time. And, you know, most famously, I think um, Arthur Ashe, the, the great tennis player and activist, um, started to organize to try and stop uh, athletes from going over. And in some instances, like with John McEnroe, he was successful. Um, with some others, um, particularly golfers, um, you know, he was not. Uh, entertainers were also um, lured over there with, with, with plenty of money. And and uh, Stephen Van Zant with uh, the E Street Band, you know, he wrote the uh, song uh, "I Ain't Gonna Play Sun City" to try and stop uh, entertainers from going over there and taking that, taking that blood money. So, um, you know, you can step up and say no sometimes. I think, you know, I think it was Muhammad Ali who had the great quote um, uh, talking about uh, being lured to do things that didn't fit his politics. Damn, some money. And these guys uh, have been unable to do that. And in your column, you bring back that Arthur Ashe quote. He said, golfers all have their heads in the sand. All of them. They are the most apolitical bunch of athletes I know. They are all 5'11", blonde, went to Oklahoma. They're all right-wing Republicans as a group, Arthur Ashe said, they don't give a damn. I don't know if you can say that today across the board. You can't, you can't generalize like that. But, but I get it, and I get your response to my question. Would you take that $100 million and run with it? I mean, listen, you and I both know that journalists are, are cut from a, a different cloth. You know, we didn't get into this business to make money. You, you know, it, it just sort of, I mean, to be honest, and I tell people all the time, uh, especially young people in this business, I didn't know when I was leaving college what six figures was. I didn't, just didn't, you know, it wasn't about the money. It was just about exposing things, you know, um, and that's, it sounds like that's why you got into the business too, to, to talk about things that most people don't often see or care about and, and make them make them pay attention. And I think this column makes people pay attention to more than just golf. Uh, and, and especially, you know, that is especially the case with me here with, with this column. It just made me think uh, beyond the sport. And I think if you look at society today, you know, I, I don't, I'm not getting on my soapbox. I will not get on my soapbox. But you have politicians who don't tell the truth. And they twist the truth. And you have people doing things that they know is wrong, but they do it anyway. And that, it sort of drives me up a wall. It sort of drives me up a wall. And, and like you, I think if somebody came to me with some proposition, some hundred 
million dollar guaranteed deal and the money came from someplace that you know kids nowadays might call shady i i could not live with myself i could not live with myself yeah um and you know i wish some of these guys uh kind of felt the same way um but obviously they don't kevin really appreciate you coming along acf what what are you writing about next give us a sneak peek <laughs> oh i i don't know i may write about the uh uh, all the clamor over the um, latest realignment of, of college uh, athletic oh, conferences, gosh. which is all yeah, right. Don't get me course. started. How um, is it that USC and UCLA <laughs> are going to be in the Big Ten? Because it's all about money. You know, We've been, everybody's been paying attention. It's all about television contracts and who can get the m- most money. Um, and it's all about, I think, the largest schools in the country aligning themselves for a future where if we pay attention to all of the legal challenges to how Oregon, how college sports um, are being run um, leads to the fact that colleges are going to start having to treat um, football and basketball uh, talent like the laborers and employees they are of the college athletic complex. And uh, I think that's really, um, I think that's really the foundation that's being laid. All right. Can't wait to read that column. Cool. Kevin Blackstone, columnist for the Washington Post. Thanks for your time. Thank you. That is America Change Forever for this week. I'm going to play golf. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.